we've done the numbers on grid scale technologies, batteries, pumped hydro. Cades is by far and away the best performing, lowest cost grid scale asset. I think it's got a big future for the next decade. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about compressed air energy storage, a utility scale solution for storing thousands of megawatt hours of energy. If you've been following this podcast, you'll know that energy storage technologies make up a lot of my episodes, and there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I'd probably separate them into chemical batteries like lithium ions and everything else. Compressed air energy storage, or K's, definitely falls into the latter category, along with things like flywheels, pumped hydro storage, and ice energy. The technology essentially works like a giant air compressor. Air is compressed to 3,000 PSI and injected into a cavern below the earth. When it's time to produce electricity, the compressed air runs a turbine, similar to what you see with natural gas combustion. The only limit to the energy you can store is the size of the cavern. My guests will list where and what kinds of caverns work best, but the ideal formation is a hollowed-out salt dome. These are naturally occurring formations of pure salt. In a process called solution mining, water is pumped into the formation, the salt is dissolved into brine and that salt water is pumped out. Rather than being trucked away or pumped into the ocean, the brine is then pumped into a well thousands of feet below the surface where other naturally occurring saline brine is located. Not to digress too much, but when we talk about the future where CO2 from power plants is sequestered underground, that CO2 would also be pumped into these saline brine formations. So once the salt is dissolved and pumped out for K's, you have an empty cave ready to fill with whatever you want. In our guest case, it's air, but salt domes are typically used to store natural gas and other valuable hydrocarbons. You may be familiar with the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, where the government can store over 700 million barrels of crude oil. It was always a source of pride to know that these facilities were located in Louisiana. As a kid, I always thought that the reserve was just a bunch of large above-ground tanks, but later I learned the crude was in fact kept in these underground caves. Same thing here. Our guest says that when they were working on permits to develop a compressed air facility, they simply followed the same rules that apply to natural gas storage. My guest says that K's has several advantages over other forms of energy storage. The first, obviously, is the volume. At 15,000 megawatt hours, this facility will be the largest storage facility on Earth, even larger than a guest I have coming up in a few weeks, which currently holds that title. The facility can also pay out over 48 hours, which is longer than any other storage technology. And what I found was the coolest was the fact that the facility can both store and produce energy at the same time. For some reason, that concept reminded me of Kenny G. (laughs) 
Back in middle school, our band director told us that Kenny G could inhale while he was playing the saxophone. 25 years later, Wikipedia has confirmed this, a talent known as circular breathing, which allowed him to once play an E-flat for over 45 minutes. At 48 hours, compressed air energy storage could be a game changer for renewable energy and flexibility on the grid. Our guest today is Jack Farley, president of Apex Compressed Air Energy Storage in Houston. They're planning the Bethel Energy Center outside of Palestine, Texas in 2022, and it'll be huge. 324 megawatts, which they describe as a demonstration on their website, but it's anything but. Once completed, Bethel will be only the third K's facility on Earth. The other two the Huntdorf plant in Germany and the Macintosh plant in Alabama are 40 and 30 years old, respectively. Now, I don't typically gripe about this, but I've been wanting to do a K's episode for a year and a half, and I reached out to one of the other two facility owners back then. You can guess which one. They strung me along for over a year before telling me they don't do interviews. Thankfully, once I found out about Apex, the interview came together within a week, and I'd say Jack's knowledge of the technology and the markets in general are without equal. I think you'll agree. Also, we talk about a few things that are Texas-specific. For one, he mentions that the percentage of renewables in the Lone Star State is huge. That's primarily due to the growth of wind, which makes up roughly 18% of the portfolio, compared to about 1% from solar. Also, ERCOT, or the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, is the shorthand way of describing the independent grid that serves most of the Lone Star State. And you'll also hear Jack mention the Railroad Commission, which is an antiquated name for the body that regulates all the oil and gas in Texas, and believe me, they've been agonizing over that name for years. No change so far. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jack Farley. Jack Farley, President and CEO of Apex Compressed Air Energy Storage. And Jack, Compressed Air Energy Storage is proven with over 40 years of runtime, yet worldwide we've only seen two operational facilities. Why do you think that is? That's a great question, Jay. There's really two reasons. One is now we have a better market and we also have better equipment. On the equipment side, Siemens has upgraded all the process equipment such that it has much lower upfront capital costs today than it used to. It has better efficiency, which means much lower dispatch costs, in fact, lower than a combined cycle gas turbine. And finally, it has greater flexibility. It can do more in five minutes than any gas turbine technology available. On the market side, what we really have achieved is a level of renewable penetration in a number of markets in the U.S. and worldwide that is reaching about 20% plus share of renewable generation relative to the total demand. When you get to that level, you achieve energy price spreads throughout the day that are attractive for storing energy. Prices get really low when demand is low and renewable production is high and you can charge the storage facility. And then prices get high in the same day when renewable production is lower and demand is higher. And the spread between the two justifies attractive investment. And look, 40 years ago, we weren't concerned about banking up renewable energy. Mm -hmm. So why did those two utilities 
facilities need them. It's hard to believe this, but back then, nuclear and baseload coal were the lowest cost resources before the age of the combined cycle gas turbine. Those two facilities, McIntosh and Huntdorf in Alabama and Germany, were built primarily to reshape baseload nuclear and coal energy into something that mirrored the demand shape, which was you know higher in the daytime and lower at night, as well as to provide black start service, which is a service required to reboot the grid if you have a major blackout. We've discussed energy storage technology in the past, but I want to help listeners understand why there's a need for this. Why is it profitable to pump and store energy and then use it up later in the day? How are you making money? Okay, that's a great question. I'll give you some numbers. What's happened in Texas in 2018, we had nearly 20% share of renewables. But the profile varies across the day. And unfortunately for renewables, you tend to get more production when demand is lower. And so you had a condition where if you took the lowest priced 12 hours per day, the average cost was a little over $20. In the other side of the day, the average price was over $46. So you had a $26 spread. Those kind of spreads for storing energy were not available five years ago. In fact, they were almost half of that. So that's how the market works on the wholesale side. But also logistically, it's a little bit strange Mm -hmm. because in Texas, it's its own grid, its own market. I've spent time there. I understand that. But I'm a little bit uneducated. And I think a lot of folks out there about the wholesale markets and how if there's a wind farm in West Texas and your mm-hmm. facility would be in East Texas, hundreds of miles away, you're benefiting the grid by producing power. How is it all connected? So ERCOT administers a real-time market and that market is looking to serve the entire Texas load with the least cost resources from the wind resources, the thermal resources. When those low prices occur, our long duration storage device can add demand to the system to store those low-priced megawatt hours. And then when the flip occurs, which generally happens on a daily basis, and that's when we can redeploy that stored renewable energy. The long-duration storage is analogous to kind of your cell phone, Jay. At night, when you don't really need to use your phone, you plug it in, you get it charged. Then when the peak usage time occurs, then you're going to use that charge. You don't want to have your phone plugged in. You want to be using it. And that's when we're going to then turn around and discharge and provide provide extra energy back to the grid. I think a lot of people can relate to that. I know I can. Last week, I forgot to charge my phone at night, and it was dread all day long. Getting into you guys, compressed air energy storage, K's for short, would a K's facility be more or less effective if it were, again, the location, if it were co-located with a renewable Mm -hmm. installation? Does that matter? It does. And there's really some pluses and minuses there. For K's, it's a little different than, say, batteries. The two pluses of being co-located are you can share some infrastructure, interconnection, building staff. The other plus of co-location is potential qualification for some tax credit help from the government. On the minus side, though, is you lose scale. Our facility is 320 megawatts with 48 hours of storage. So to be co-located with a renewable resource would require, gosh, a gigantic wind or solar farm bigger than any that exists in Texas. You don't want to give that up by co-location locating, number one. But number two, back to our conversation about how the grid works in real time. If you're co-located behind a meter, you're really optimizing against a single resource. Whereas when you're grid connected, not co-located, you're optimizing all resources. You're really playing center field Mm -hmm. for 
all the resources in the mix. For us, the pluses of scale and optimization across the grid far outweigh the cost savings and the tax benefits of co-location. Let's talk a little bit about this site. Now, you guys are in East Texas near Palestine. That's about two hours from my hometown in Shreveport. Basically, in Shreveport, we're kind of East Texas by default. But um, (laughs) what's so special about this site? Well, there's two attributes to the site. We're sitting on a very large salt formation over a mile in diameter. It has existing natural gas underground storage in the salt that's proven. It's got over a 25-year track record. So it also has gas infrastructure, obviously. And the salt infrastructure to build a new cavern, custom-built for RK's design, is available so we don't have to invest in new infrastructure to essentially create the cavern, which allows us to have remarkably low storage media costs. And let me just put that in perspective. To build our storage media, which is capable of supporting 15,000 megawatt hours of energy production, which is about 48 hours of storage costs $2 per kilowatt hour. For grid scale storage with lithium ion, the cost is between $200 and $250 per kilowatt hour. So over 100 times more expensive for the storage media. Now that ignores the balance of the plant where we have more costs, but overall we're much lower cost than lithium ion on a fully installed basis. Number two is liquidity for long-term hedges. In today's power market in Texas, you're not going to attract investment for multi-hundred million dollar projects without hedges in your first few years of operation that ensure your cash flow. And the North Hub, which is where we're located, is the most liquid point for long-term forward hedges. It's essentially a proxy for the Dallas load zone. Yeah. You name dropped how big this is. 15,000 megawatt hours. It's a 320 megawatt facility. <laughs> On the website called a demonstration, but that's a full-scale commercial installation in most people's books. What makes it a demonstration. It is. No, you're right. It is a full-scale storage. In fact, the 15,000 megawatt hours of storage capacity would be larger than all the batteries installed in California today. And the reason it is so large is we want to capture the benefits of scale cost advantage. And you mentioned the dollars. You said $2 a kilowatt hour Mm -hmm. versus $200 to $250 for Mm lithium-ion as we know this. And I talk about storage technologies Mm -hmm. a lot. Is there anything out there that's even remotely as affordable as this, maybe pump storage hydroelectric flywheels. We've done a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd say on cost and performance, we're far ahead of any other grid-scale storage technology. Now, I will give it to batteries on behind the meter. I think they can play a role there where they can take advantage of saving transmission distribution costs. But at grid-scale, we haven't seen any technology that can produce attractive returns to investors based on wholesale markets like the compressed air energy storage project in Texas can. It's got four attributes that make it more economic. I mentioned the installation costs up front are far lower, but in addition to that, obviously we have much longer storage duration. You know, we have 48 hours of continuous ability to operate before we have to refill. Most lithium-ion facilities are two to four hours. ERCOT has a 24-hour day-ahead market. Obviously, you can't participate in the energy market for 24 hours if you have four hours of storage. When you can make predominantly most of your money from storing energy, that's a big market. In Texas, that's an average of 3,700,000 megs an hour. In addition, we have something that pumped hydro and batteries don't have, which is we can operate both 
the discharging and charging functions simultaneously. Pumped hydro and batteries are effectively binary devices. They either charge or discharge or they're neutral. The advantages of being able to do both simultaneously are when we're charging, energy prices are low. We can still provide ramping service, flexibility, ancillary services to the grid from our discharging side of our facility. And those are particularly valuable in those hours because you've displaced most of the thermal generation and the value of those services tends to be higher when energy prices are very low. And we can take advantage of that with our capacity on the discharging side 24 hours a day effectively. That's a big cost advantage. Now, I don't think many people think about this, that there aren't very many storage no. technologies that can charge while they're discharging at the same time. Exactly. <laughs> very binary. Can. You mentioned 48 hours. That is a huge discharge duration <laughs> compared to, you said, batteries, a couple hours. How do you see this working in the real world? Do you see this paying yep. out over two days, or do you see this really playing in the couple hours here, couple hours there space? Yeah. Well, the value of the 48 hours, as you're kind of alluding to, it's not that we're going to run for 48 40 hours straight and then charge for 40 hours straight. That's not what we're going to do. Generally speaking, we're going to charge between 10 to 16 hours per day, and we're going to discharge between 10 to 14 hours a day. The value of the 48 hours is twofold. One, you can move the marginal charging or discharging hour to the next day, to the weekend. You have the opportunity to optimize freely across days because you have the storage duration to do it, and that creates incremental value. But number two, we do have emergency conditions from time to time that will last for over 24 hours. We had a freeze in February 11 that was nearly 48-hour emergency condition where you would have wanted to discharge. Now, those don't happen often, but they're particularly high-priced events, and you do want to take advantage of those when they occur. You talked a little bit about the cavern that you're using, says mm-hmm. the salt dome. I think a lot of people who live on the Gulf Coast are familiar with that for Strategic Petroleum Reserve is a salt yeah. cavern, right? This is a one thing that they don't do with those places. You're pumping this cavern full of 3,000 PSI of air. How do you make sure there's no leaks in that geology? Or can you plug it up if there are? Yeah, good question. Putting 3,000 PSI air into a salt cavern is not uncommon. This is generally the mid-range pressure for natural gas storage, which there's many natural gas storage caverns in salt. Number two, why doesn't it leak? The Texas Railroad Commission requires periodic testing to make sure it does not leak. And the reason it doesn't is because, surprisingly, you think of salt as hard crystal, but it really is a malleable mineral. Technically speaking, when it's time to release energy and power the generator, explain how that works. Because I think a lot of people are picturing a pinwheel, but it's not not that simple, right? At least in the literature, there is a little bit of a combustion mm-hmm. component, correct? Correct. Yeah, you know, it is pretty simple like a pinwheel. I mean, the expansion part of our process where we generate electricity, we're releasing the high-pressure air across a series of turbine blades, just like the back half of a gas turbine or jet engine. We do use heat to warm the air as it goes through the stages because as air expands, it gets cold, just like your air conditioner. So we use natural gas and we use our exhaust gas through a to keep the air hot so it'll do more work as it goes through the expanders. Now, Jack, we talked about this at the very beginning, this idea that there really hasn't been another facility like this. I think the first facility went in about 40 years ago, and the second one went in Mm -hmm. 30 years ago. And here you guys are, your number three. Circling back to that real quick, are there other ones? Is there a boom now in development of future compressed air facilities? Yeah, there are a couple of more projects around the world. I wouldn't call it a boom yet, which 
challenging in the energy storage space is you really make money in a different way than traditional generation. Ten years ago, you remember this, Jay, was I need to meet my peak load in the summer and I need baseload energy for the rest. And now you have high penetration of wind and solar. You have moderate loads. That's becoming challenging. And you have the flip side of it, which is where you're inundated with production and prices are darn near zero. It's really a different world where you've got more high-priced hours more times of the year where renewables are low and they're getting higher and you have more extremely low-priced hours of the year. That evolving paradigm is kind of the biggest challenge to long-duration energy storage as opposed to with batteries on the grid, it's been more like pilot projects and so far we haven't seen batteries that have been built being used for energy storage, real renewable integration to reduce curtailment of over-generation of solar or wind to really store hours and hours of energy from one part of the day to another part of the day. You can look at the dispatch of the ERCOT batteries, the PJM batteries, and the California batteries. They're basically fast regulators and frequency response with almost no energy production for shifting renewable production from one part of the day to the next part of the day when you really need it. Not like this. We are adding not like a lot hours of storage we are. of stored energy onto the grid. Now that's more macro. Let's get to your yep. level. You guys are expecting to go online by 2022. I'm a project manager by trade. I can only imagine you guys are forging new ground here. So what's been the most challenging part of this project for you guys over there at Apex? It's back to educating investors about the changing paradigm in power. It's not the technical side. All the equipment is provided by Siemens with performance warranties. Siemens is going to construct all this surface equipment under fixed price. And the cavern itself, we're on a dome with five other caverns. It's well known. It's about as low as risk as you can find. The real challenge is on this evolving market that is changing the way people view how economics work. And when you talk about making most of your money from intraday storage spreads, it's just a different conversation than people are used to. Yeah. And look, I came from from oil field where everything had to be tough. And I think of this, it's mechanical. It seems to me like it can certainly withstand a lot of cycles, which you guys refer yeah. to a lot of in the storage industry. Compare that right. to some newer battery technologies. I believe you said that you can do a steady amount of cycles for 30 years before the equipment yes. really wears out. Is that right? Yeah, no, the equipment has no cycling constraints. You could cycle it 24 times a day mm-hmm. and it's designed for at least a 30-year operating life. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And that is a major differentiator to batteries. When you have a lithium-ion battery with five to 10,000 cycles maximum for the life of the cell, it changes your whole mode of operation. Again, coming back to not storing energy. When you store energy, you use a cycle. And if you only have 5,000 of them, the marginal cost of using that cycle is very high. You're using them up. You only get so many bullets in a lithium-ion battery, and you shoot them, and it's expensive. We're like a traditional generator where there are no cycling constraints. Yeah. And so basically the equipment would be replaced above the surface in the cavern. Anything you need to do to ensure the cave stays healthy. We talked about the leak. You're constantly blowing air in and out of there. What do you need to do to make sure that that stays intact? We do the same thing that a natural gas storage cavern would do, which is we have to maintain some minimum pressures and we can't go above a maximum pressure. The top of our cavern is going to be about 3,500 feet below the surface. So you imagine all that rock and dirt above it, weighing down on it. If we had no pressure in there, 
there, it would slowly collapse. I mean, it would take a few years, but it would squeeze in on itself. And on the other side of the equation, if we were to exceed our permit maximum, which is upwards around 3,000 PSI, you could blow a hole in the salt. <laughs> yeah. It sounds kind of crazy, but you could do it. These are operating parameters that have been in use for 40 years in the natural gas storage industry. Again, essentially, we look a lot like a natural gas storage cavern, except that we're using air. It seems to me that because there's not very many compressed air energy storage, essentially, you're the first one in Texas, more or less, one yep. of the only ones in the world that you, for regulatory sake, piggybacked on the regulations for natural gas salt dump storage, right? The legislature didn't write new rules for you guys, no, right? No, no new rules for us. ERCOT had to write some new rules for storage, but that was just around metering and the fact that we're a wholesale resource, not retail resource when it comes to charging. Yeah. So you're planning to go online early part of next decade. Let's talk about repeatability. Definitely want it to be the first, don't want it to be the last. So what do you think about being able to do this in other locations? And do they have to be salt domes? We touched on the regulatory mm -hmm. aspect. I don't think anyone complains about Texas regulations being overly harsh compared to other parts of the country. Where do you think this is headed? It does not have to be a salt dome. It can be other types of salt formations, what they call bedded salt, which is a little thinner and wider, can stretch for miles and miles. We've scoped out a number of markets in the U.S. and Canada. There is suitable salt for siting compressed air energy storage at scale with the scale cost advantages in almost every market in the United States. The only markets that I would exclude would be the Northeast and Florida. Many parts of Canada have suitable salt and then internationally, Germany, UK, China, Spain, Mexico, most of those have existing natural gas storage in salt. Beyond salt, you can use hard rock mines. It's a little more difficult. Could you use an abandoned underground coal seam? You could if it's deep enough. Probably most know. It's very hard to say and probably I'd say fairly rare that you could make it work, but it's not impossible. It had to be a deep one. We've done the numbers on grid scale technologies, batteries, pumped hydro. Case is by far and away the best performing, lowest cost grid scale asset. I think it's got a big future for the next decade as these markets integrate large amounts of renewable. It becomes very economic to invest in this and investors will find these attractive opportunities and invest in them. Yeah. K's to me is a lot like how I feel about geothermal. Why don't we see more of it? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. Geothermal is a great resource as long as you have the geology. Sure. We have the geology for K's. We just got to recognize it and it's got to be adopted. It's kind of like solar seven years ago. We barely were doing PV solar in the United States and now, gosh, we're doing more than 10,000 megs a year. I think once it gets started and becomes more common, it'll take off. Jack, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Definitely the bridge fuel to higher renewable grid for the next two decades. Crude oil. Probably reach peak crude oil within three decades. Nuclear. I think nuclear has a new future. It needs more R&D. It needs to be more modular, maybe more flexible, but it should be one of the carbon-free resources in the future. Coal. Definitely declining. Wind continue to grow. Now it's got competition from solar, so it'll share the spotlight with solar now more than it did maybe five years ago. 
solar. Cost parity to win now in places where you have good solar resource, so it's taking off. Biofuels. Good carbon-free resource, particularly helpful for transportation sector. Hydroelectric. Should be expanded a bit, but a low-hanging fruit has been picked many decades ago. It is tough to cite, but I think we could do more with hydroelectric, but probably not as much as wind and solar, but more. Geothermal. Probably the same as hydroelectric. Some of the low-hanging fruits have been picked. Wish we had more good resource. I think people will find ways to find more geothermal as we go forward in time. Electric vehicles. I think it takes a while. I think electric vehicles will grow. I don't think they'll play a big grid role for a while. There's a lot of barriers, both on the equipment side, warranty side, consumer behavior side. Ultimately, they will, but I think it'll take more than a decade before it's meaningful. Energy efficiency. We have picked a lot of low-hanging fruit there, but I have to assume that technology will provide some more opportunities. And again, we're going to have more hours where the grid's under stress in the future with higher renewable penetrations, which provide you know economic incentives for it to grow. And then finally, energy storage. Let's just do general. I think you need to have 20% renewable penetration before the investment economics work. And then as you go to 30 and 40% penetration, which we will be doing in the next decade in a number of markets, the economics are extremely compelling. And 40% is a huge number. I don't think many people ever it's thought they'd number. No. And then your energy storage, compressed air energy storage. Definitely the lowest cost, long duration, grid scale technology. Not even close. In fact, lithium ion costs, if they continue to go down, still won't be at parity with compressed air energy storage in a decade. All right, Jack Farley, Apex K's, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. It was really a pleasure talking to you today, Jay. That was Jack Farley, president of Apex Compressed Air Energy Storage, a developer based in Houston. Jack and I also discussed some of the other advantages Kays has for the grid, what are commonly referred to as flexibility services, such as interruption capability, ramping, and spinning reserves. You can find out more about that on energy-cast.com, as well as plenty of pictures on the site and on Instagram at Host Energy. I want to thank Jack for his time, as well as Whit Duncan, a former associate of his that now works for Eon in Austin for introducing me to Jack. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 57. Be sure to join us next week when we meet the head of a new startup that's literally making clean coal. You won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.